0: The scripture reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. It can be found on page 944 in the Black Bibles. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The Word of God. Thanks be God. Thank you, Fleming, so much, and good morning to you. Welcome to Christ the King. My name is Clay Holland. I am uh, the associate pastor here, and um, yeah, that says Advent reflections from the book of Revelation. It's Advent. This is not the book of Revelation. I actually think that was my bad. I do know that there are sermons in Advent coming from the book of Revelation, but um, I'm just going to ask for some, uh, well, at this point, I'm definitely asking for forgiveness and not permission. To preach from romans it 's kind of preparatory anyway um, from, for for what 's coming from the book of Revelation because this in many respects is a, a preparatory sermon that kind of deals with a little bit with our current state why what is our great need? Why do we need a savior to come? Why do we need a savior to come to set to right all that is wrong and all that is broken uh, we 're going to look at that this morning uh, from paul 's um, epistle to the Romans in chapter 8. so let me pray as we look now into God's word. Father, we do thank you. Um, we thank you that you are not aloof and that you are not unconcerned with your creation and your people. Um, Father, we desperately need you, we desperately need a Savior. We desperately need you to come and to set to right everything that is wrong in our lives and in the world. We ask that you would do that. But we ask that we would wait with patience and with hope as we wait for your coming and help us to do that even this morning as we encounter your word. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you've heard a few times already this morning, this is the season of Advent here at Christ the King. It's also, you know, for a lot of different people in a lot of different places, uh, this season has a lot of different names. It's the Christmas season, it's the holiday season, it's the uh, Black Friday, or I don't even, it's not even Friday, it's like the, it's like the, it's like the whole month, you know, is now uh, taken over with that. It's that season, but for some people, and I'm not going to name names, but you know who you are, it's the Hallmark Christmas movie season. That's what it really is. Now, I have a confession to make, and that confession is this. I've never actually seen a Hallmark Christmas movie from beginning to end. I know I've passed one or two. But that does not mean that I don't know the plot. And I use the word plot, singular, on purpose. Even though there are a million Hallmark Christmas movies, there is but one plot. And it is this. There is a small-town girl who is the smartest girl in her school, And she feels trapped and constrained by said small town. So, after graduating from college, she leaves the small town and she goes to an Ivy League school in the Northeast. And after college, she lands the lucrative but high pressure job in the big city. And by all external accounts, she is thriving. But when she's alone in her apartment after a hard, pressure-packed day of work, there are hints that there are, are cracks and chinks in the armor. All may not be perfect. And then comes Christmas time. And for the first time in many, many years, she is coming home. Now, she's not coming home only because she wants to come back to the small town. She's coming home because something has drawn her there. Maybe it is the wedding of her best friend from high school. Maybe one of her family members is sick. But something other than Christmas is bringing our heroine back to the small town. And on her first day back in the small town, our heroine has a meet-cute with small-town boy. Now, this is somebody she knew from high school. Maybe it was the jock that was too cool for her at the time, but, you know, has gotten humbled over the years. Maybe it was the ugly duckling that somehow over the intervening years bl- lost him to Ryan Gosling. That happens. Uh, maybe it was her first boyfriend who she dumped so she could go to the Ivy League school and then to the big city. Whatever it is, they meet up. Now, in a Hallmark Christmas movie, a small-town boy can have... Three jobs. One of three jobs. He's an organic farmer and he sells his produce in the local farmer's market. He owns a hardware store on Main Street that used to be his dad's and probably one that is facing a lot of market pressure from the new Walmart that is being built on the outskirts of the small town. Or he's the chef as the small town's first and only farm-to-table restaurant also located on Main Street. And over time, and with plenty of prodding from small-town boy, our heroine begins to feel herself become more alive, right, in the small town, a little bit more herself, a little bit more at home than she ever felt in the big city. And for the first time, she discovers what she has been longing for, this sense in her heart that was there, but she couldn't name it. But it's been right here in the small town all alone. So big city girl and small town boy fall in love, they marry, and our heroine helps with the work on the organic farm, or because she has business experience in the big city, she saves the hardware store from the clutches of Walmart, or she transforms the farm-to-table restaurant so much so that they end up with a Michelin star, and they all live happily ever after that's the plot you don't have to watch anymore they're all the same now why why is this storyline so popular or some version of it why has this been such a cultural phenomenon for basically the entirety of the century that we live in I think it because it taps into something deep in us really I think it taps into this longing for home that we experience, that we want to be in a place and with people and we want to do work that makes, most makes, the, that makes the most sense of ourselves or it makes us feel most at peace, most at home, most alive. And this is not new and I'm going to say that this is not wrong. In fact, C.S. Lewis begins his amazing essay called The Weight of Glory with exactly this sense of longing he says some people call it romanticism some people call it uh, nostalgia I'm going to add some people call it hallmark but it is the sense that there is a true home for us as human beings and we're not in it and we're not in it this sense is embedded in us because it's true The Bible tells us it's true. The Bible tells us it's true right here from Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 at its core is about recognizing and owning that things in this world and things in our lives are not the way that they are supposed to be. But it also states with emphasis that all of those things will ultimately be repaired by a savior. So right now, today, on this very day, you and I live in tension. We live in the tension between present suffering and future glory, to use the Apostle Paul's words. The question for us is this, what is the biblical posture of living in this tension? And Paul answers with one single word. Hope. Hope. Because we live in the tension between present suffering and future glory, we're called to live our lives in hope. Now let me do a little bit of definitional work because hope has a very particular meaning in the Bible and it's different from the way that we generally use it. Um, Like, I hope I win the Powerball lottery or I hope I get into my dream school. Hope in the Bible is the biblical posture of living expectantly it's the biblical posture of living expectantly biblical hope means that you acknowledge what is true about yourself and about the world under the reign of sin but that you live your life with your eyes and your heart pulled towards something that is absolutely certain to materialize that's the difference between biblical hope and our own cultural definition of hope biblical hope is based on certainty of the future the ultimate victory of Jesus over sin and death and eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. So let's consider hope as Paul articulates it here in Romans 8 that we're called to hope because we experience present suffering and we're called to hope because we long for future glory. There's a present aspect to hope there's a future aspect to hope. The present aspect is this we experience present suffering. Now you could say, no kidding, I know that, and we could move on. But I'm going like, to dig into it a little bit as Paul digs into it here in Romans 8. And I need to go back quickly to verse 16, uh, because Paul is not actually starting a new topic in verse 18. He's continuing along a thought where he has already said this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, in those verses, as then Paul launches into this uh, kind of new section here in Romans 18, he says something really important, that our lives as followers of Jesus mirrors the life of Jesus himself. Our lives as followers of Jesus mirrors the life of Jesus himself where suffering precedes glory. And Paul is making it clear here in Romans chapter 8. You could read Romans uh, 8, 16 and 17 only in a spiritual sense. That because we are united to Christ in his death that we experience his suffering with him in a spiritual sense and we experience his glory with him in a spiritual sense and this is actually true but this is not the only thing that Paul says here. We actually do this and we know this from verse 18. For I consider our present sufferings real sufferings. In this life, not just kind of a metaphorical suffering with Jesus on the cross, but real sufferings, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. We do experience present suffering, we will experience future glory. Now, there are two aspects to this, and I, and I want to dig in here for just a second because this is not just this is not only about Me as an individual and my relationship with Jesus. It's about that, but it's not only about that. Because creation experiences suffering and humanity experiences suffering. Let's look first at the suffering of creation. There are three things that Paul tells us about the world that we live in, the world that we inhabit. First, it was subjected to frustration. God cursed the ground, we see in Genesis chapter 3. This is in verse 20. And the fact that creation itself is out of whack is not its fault. It's our fault. The earth and all that was in it was an innocent bystander in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And because of the disobedience of our first parents, God subjected the creation itself to frustration. Frustration in creation means that creation is unable to function in the way that God created it to function. The earth is not as beautiful as it could be. The ground does not produce what it could produce. Floods destroy crops. Droughts destroy crops and they're constant in our world. The second thing we read here is that creation is subject to the bondage of decay. This is in verse 21. The big beautiful oak tree in my backyard dies in the giant freeze and then has to be cut down. Stars and nebulae burn out, glaciers melt and then finally creation is groaning for all of this to be reversed. It can't do anything. It's just waiting. It is groaning. It is longing. This is in verse 19. It's as if the creation itself desires to be all that it can be, but is trapped, trapped by the will of God, trapped because of our rebellion against God. The Holland family has has bit the bullet at least preliminarily, and is planning to pick up a new puppy on Christmas Eve this year. It's been two and a half years since we've had a dog, and we're diving back in. I'm a little nervous, I must say. We had a beloved dog, uh, Charlotte, the Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, that died in May 2020 because of mitral valve disease that impacted her heart. And I'll never forget, I think, as long as I live, our last night that we had with Charlotte she had a lot of energy it was May it was a May evening and she had a ton of energy so we were going to take her out for a walk and her normal walk and she started out this walk completely normal full of energy full of curiosity we get about a quarter mile into this walk and she just drops she just falls over like goes you know like no warning nothing she just fell over so I picked her up and I carried her back home. And as I was carrying her back home, when we got to our driveway, Shannon took a picture. And I'll never forget this picture. I hope I never lose this picture because I'm carrying our, our dog back and, and Shannon takes a picture and my dog is looking at me and, and, and the expression on her face is, what is happening to me? What, what is happening? Her body was giving out. A creature subject to the frustration Of decay through no fault of her own. Creation itself is longing to be all that God made it to be. And Paul also teaches it about the suffering of humanity. This is in verse 23. Paul makes the shift from the rest of creation to God's children, believers in Jesus, in fact. So he's not only saying that unbelievers, because they do bad things, experience suffering. He's saying we all experience suffering because we live in this tension between the already and the not yet. Not only creation, Paul says, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Groaning. Now there is an appropriate word in the Bible if ever there was one, right? Aren't there times in your life, maybe you've had one, maybe you're going through one right now. If not, you will go through one where you can't even articulate The confusion and the disorientation and the pain that you feel. You can't, you don't know how to talk to other people about it. You may not even know how to talk to God about it. And so, what do you do? You groan. We groan inwardly, right? If you look around this room right now, do you know what you're gonna see? Every single person that you see in this room is bearing the weight of the corruption of our bodies. In small ways and big ways, every single person in this room experiences it. There is the weight of the lost season of a sport that you love due to an injury in your body or even the loss of an activity that you deeply love because your body can't perform it anymore there are cancer cells growing and multiplying in our bodies there are autoimmune diseases that are at work where your body is at war against itself there are neurological issues that cause you to lose control of your body a body that you were once able to control there's the decline of a once razor sharp mind and a healthy body There's the loss of a child in the womb or even shortly thereafter. All of these things and more are happening in this church on this very day. And even if you are not personally experienced it, I'd be willing to bet that someone that you love is. Maybe this year at Thanksgiving dinner, there was a brand new empty chair that was full last year. Maybe this was the first year that you had to figure out how to get to two houses on Thanksgiving Day instead of one because there was a dissolution of a relationship, a demise of a marriage, and it's so painful. It's so frustrating. It's so confusing. that It's impossible to articulate, and all you can do is groan. But groaning is not the end of the story. That's the beauty of the Bible. That's the beauty of Romans chapter 8. Groaning is not the end of the story. Frustration, bondage, decay, none of these are the end of the story. Because we are called to live in hope because we long for the certainty of future glory. And just like present suffering impacts both the creation and humanity, so does this future glory. There is the future glory of creation. Creation is groaning in eager expectation for something to happen, Paul says, and that is for the sons of God to be revealed. Now sons is used here in Romans 8 in a non-gender specific way. The text really means that the children of God will be revealed. And what this means is this. When Jesus returns and he separates the sheep from the goats, the sheep to eternal life and the goats to eternal separation from God in hell, The creation itself will be released from its bondage to decay and the earth itself will experience its own sort of redemption. The heavens and the earth will be all that they were created to be and more. Now, I tend to harp on this a good bit, but it's only because the Bible harps on it a good bit. I I know it's not just me. But this is another one of those places in the Bible where we are taught that heaven is not a place where disembodied souls float around somewhere in outer space. That's not what we are ultimately longing for. Heaven is God's creation that is redeemed and restored. The rivers that flood become the rivers that flow. The trees that die and burn become the trees that give beauty to the forest and homes to the birds. The ground that grows brittle with trout becomes the ground that it produces in abundance. The winds that wreak havoc on our coastlines become the gentle breezes on your skin and you will have skin. You see, if we, as Paul tells us, are to live with hope, we need to have something amazing to hope for. And I, for one, see nothing worth hoping for in a disembodied soul floating around in some non-physical space called heaven. But a redeemed and a restored creation, a place of beauty, a place of adventure, a place of exploration, a place of the majesty constantly reflecting the glory of creation, a a place of reunions with those who you love. For that, for that we can hope. And that leads us to our own future glory, the future glory of God's children. What this means is this, whatever it is that is causing you right now to groan inwardly, And to feel that you are bearing a weight that you don't know possibly how it is that you can bear it. Whatever it is, the loss of someone that you deeply loved and the life that is now lived alone. A relationship that you had such high hopes for but is now cracking under its own weight. A covenant child who is making bad choices and is causing your heart to break as one who loves them so much but you're powerless to do anything about it. An addiction that you detest and long to be free from, but have thus far been unable to turn from. A body that seems to conspire against you at every turn. Friends who have turned away from you because they feel that you have nothing to offer to them. Lost dreams by way of college rejection letters or the job offers that did not materialize. Whatever those things are, Romans 8 teaches that when Jesus returns, they will be reversed. And as we have sung so beautifully this morning, all things, all things will be set to right. And that, friends, is why we celebrate Advent. For who hopes for what he sees? We don't see it yet. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is a season of expectant hope for you, where you can cast all of those burdens that you groan inwardly for onto your Savior. And you can actively, how many of you do this? How many of you actively pray that Jesus will come back? That, that, that prayer is all over the place in the Bible. In fact, it's almost the last thing that the Bible says. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And then we live in light of that certainty of his coming. That is the posture of hope. You know, as a pastor, um, one of my favorite things to do is to officiate weddings. Weddings are fun, you know. They're, they're fun, right? And We need fun. And at every wedding, I have a I have a I have a great vantage point because I stand here at weddings. And so when I stand here at weddings, I can see the bride as she walks down the aisle, but I can also see the groom as he stands up front. See, everybody else is looking at one or the other. Ninety-nine point nine percent of the people are looking at the bride, the groom's mom is looking at him. If you if you want to know kind of how that goes, that's how it goes. I get to see both. And, you know, recently I participated in a wedding where I would say Romans 8 was on full display. The music started, triumphant, beautiful, amazing. The back doors swing open, and the bride appeared on the arm of her father. And the groom, I've actually never seen this before. The groom standing up here physically and visibly began to shake. And he was not shaking out of nervousness, and he was certainly not shaking out of fear. You know, you're kind of thinking like, "Oh, hey, wait a minute, what's going on here?" It, it was not that. It's that while it's really unacceptable as the groom of a future bride to yell to the back of the sanctuary at your future father-in-law and say, "Will you walk faster?" That's what his body was saying. It was just like a lion, you know, kind of like ready, ready to pass. walk faster, man. That's what he was saying. And when I looked down, tears were puddling between his feet. You see? This is the biblical posture of hope. This is the way that we are called to live our lives. Something glorious is going to happen, but it has not yet happened. We see it dimly. We see it off in a distance, but we don't experience it yet. But it is certain. It is sure and certain because Our lives as followers of Jesus mirror the life of Jesus where his suffering produced the glory of the resurrection. And that is our trajectory. That is your trajectory if you trust in him alone as your savior. Do you trust in him? Do you live with that expected hope? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. For your goodness and your glory and your mercy and the hope that you provide, because you are not in the grave, you are alive and you are coming again. And we, along with so many saints who have gone before us, ask, plead that you will come again, that you will come again to restore what is broken, to fully redeem us from all of our sin that we experience it no more to set to right those things that are wrong and we ask it in your precious name amen